Lord our God, we come to you now and we do pray especially that you would open our hearts and our minds. O Spirit, come and quicken us to newness of life. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to the church, that we might see Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that you would do this all for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation 19. You can find that printed in your bulletin or in your ESV Bible. Much has transpired since we last opened this letter a few days ago. For the sake of time, we needed to skip to the end that we might see more specifically what God is doing to bring all things together. But before we turn to our text, I want to do just a little bit of context work, looking at those chapters we skipped over very quickly. Chapter 12 gives us this strange image of a woman being pursued or chased by a dragon that's seeking to devour. And simply put, the the woman represents the church. It's the people of God, both representing the Old and the New Covenant. The dragon, of course, represents Satan himself, that great serpent of old that we see even in the Garden of Eden. And from there, more characters are introduced through the chapters. The woman's child, for instance, depicts Christ our Lord being born of the flesh in this world and then ascending back to God in heaven to rule and to reign. Chapter 13 then depicts two of Satan's minions, that beast of the sea, Really, it represents all worldly powers in this age, whether it's Rome or Iran or China or the U.S. or whatever worldly power it may be. And then the beast out of the land, representing all evil, all those ethical and religious agendas contrary to God's word, fighting against his people. Interestingly, together, these three, Satan and the two beasts, they form a false trinity, a sort of counterfeit God. And we see then from that point to the end of Revelation, those three warring against God and His church over and against the great and awesome power of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14 gives us a little bit of a reprieve. We see that theme picked up again that we saw in chapter 7. God's people are sealed and protected for all of time from Christ's first coming to his second coming, God himself is watching over us. Chapters 15 and 16 give us the difficult image of God's wrath being fulfilled. Those seven bowls that are poured out against humanity in judgment. And Yes, they point to final destruction, final judgment. But also we see that their effects are played out during this age as well. Then we get to chapter 17 and 18, a very interesting image, that of Babylon the harlot, or elsewhere called the whore of Babylon. We see then two women depicted, figuratively of course, just symbolic language in Revelation. One woman is that of the church. We see then in chapter 17 and 18, the other woman is everyone else, the false church. The church is the woman who is protected and nourished by God in the wilderness of this age, just meaning the time between Christ's first and second coming. Then Babylon is the woman of this age that is fallen, 
fallen, as we have just read, for all her immoralities, all of her moral failings, all of her warring against God and the church. Finally, then, we get to our text. We get to chapter 19. John's vision zooms in, as it were, on those events coming at the end of the age when Christ should return to rule His people. And before the bad stuff and then the really, really good stuff of a new heaven and new earth, we get this picture of a marriage feast. The wedding, supper, or dinner of the Lamb. I like that language from our children. Let us turn our attention to God's Word that we might better understand just what is this feast. I'll read beginning in verse 6, chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." And before we get to all of that very intense language, I want to talk to you about weddings. If you've been a part of a wedding recently, but some of you may even be planning a wedding coming up soon, it's a wonderful time of celebration. But anybody who's been through it, as I recently have, knows it comes with a good deal of stress as well. Oh, the decisions to be made, this or that or the other. 
thankfully, I have a wonderful and dear wife and in-laws who do a lot of that for me. And I'm blessed. But you know, weddings bring out the best of us and sometimes the worst of us. We mix all of the company of our lives together and expect everything to go just perfectly. And that doesn't always happen. But weddings are a time of rejoicing. We love weddings. We love that celebration. We love those feasts because, in short, we love love. We are created to love love. That devotion, that commitment to the uttermost, that willingness to lay down your life, to yield it up for someone else, to give them all that you are and all that you have. And that's what we see in our text today. We see the willingness of one to love even to the end of the earth. Quite literally, the end of time, the end of the age. We see first, as we look back to our passage, those verses immediately before our passage we've just read, John hears a voice gathering all of the hosts together. That's all of the saints, eternity, past, present, and future. All of the angels, every creature in heaven and on earth together to sing praise to God. In short, this is the event, not of the year, not of the decade or the century, not of the millennia. This is the event of all time. It's that important. Oh, how we strive after that sometimes with our feeble attempts to make a great party. But here, here, we see God celebrating. And it's a beautiful picture. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of waters, the sound of thunder. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We need to understand something a little bit about Jewish culture and a Jewish mindset here. We need to understand how the ancient Near East celebrated weddings or marriage. It's a little bit different from us, you know, Today, especially if you're a father of daughters, you know that it all centers around the bride and everything she wants, she gets. Oh, it's, it's the bride. You can't say no to the bride. And we, we, we create this elaborate day and celebration and feast all centered around the bride. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm saying maybe we go a little too far. You know, the average American family spends $22,600 on a wedding on one day. That's the average But this sermon is not a comment on our practices. It's what they did, and it's a little different. See, it wasn't all centered around the bride, at least not leading up to it. They had a betrothal, which is a little bit more than our engagement. Once two were betrothed to be wed, it was legal. It was binding. Uh, We can see how that is serious in the account of Jesus' birth. How Joseph very graciously deals with Mary. But it was binding. And then there's a season of waiting. And that that waiting period was built in because a bride required a dowry. She required a bride price. Someone must earn the right to marry this young woman. We see that in the Old Testament. As Jacob pursues after Rachel, or Leah, and then Rachel. 
He's deceived by Laban, his father-in-law. He worked so that he might have the right to marry this young woman. Dowry prices could be paid up front, but that wasn't a common practice. Ladies are expensive. I'm teasing. But they worked. There was a season of waiting, and after the waiting, then came the feast. And we think ours are special. One day, celebrating all of our family and friends, a big party to celebrate love and God's commitment in marriage itself, they would typically celebrate for a week. Think about putting on a party for the whole town and for all of your family and friends to go on for a week. That's the picture of this marriage feast. Only this marriage feast isn't for seven days. It's for the seventh day. It's for the Sabbath rest. It's for eternity. And that's the picture The marriage of the Lamb has come. The event of all of history, of all of time and space, has arrived. And the bride has made herself ready. And we need to understand something here, looking at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We could be given over to the fact that, well, maybe God is just waiting until his church cleans herself up, until the bride really gets ready, is done with all the pampering and putting on of the fine jewels and the clothing. That's not a picture of Christian salvation. That's works righteousness. That we might endeavor to make ourselves worthy. That we might merit God's favor or his love. That's not a picture of the Jewish wedding feast. That's not a picture of God's love for his church. Notice the bride has made herself ready, but it was given her or granted her fine clothing. You see, that's the picture of the bridegroom coming with the dowry, providing all that she needs. We might look to Ephesians chapter 3 to understand this more easily. We see that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was Ephesians 2, I'm sorry. But God prepared the fine linens beforehand. The righteous deeds of the saints God has already prepared and provided for our salvation. That's the beauty of the Christian gospel. God's not waiting on us to get better. He's waiting because He wishes that no one would perish. He's constantly extending His grace and His mercy in the gospel. This is what we see in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. There's a beautiful picture here. That word invited really means to call out. It's not as if God is sitting there at his feast and, oh, there's somebody passing by. Come on, bring them in. No, what do we do when we have a great party? I love going to fancy parties. You know why? Because I have a place. There's a little placard there on the table with my name. This is my seat. It was prepared for me. See, that's... The picture. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. It's better for me to go away so that I can go to my father's house where there's many rooms. 
and I'll prepare a place for you. And I will come. This is wedding language. I will come. I will bring you to myself. I will bring you to my Father's house where there's infinite wealth and riches and pleasures forevermore. But we have to be invited. We have to be called. And it's even better than that. It's not just called out, but it's called by name. It's called by God's name. We are His people. We bear the family name and resemblance of God Himself. It's a beautiful image that we are called to be His people. Unlike some of our weddings where everything centers on the bride, we we should expect a depiction next of the bride. But that's shifted over to chapter 21. First, John wants us to see, God wants us to see who the bridegroom is. A real and accurate description of the bridegroom and what he does. So we continue on in verse 11. John sees heaven open. Notice that's not... Uh, an image of heaven, that's the real heaven open. It's the glory of God, unmitigated, unrestrained. And behold, there's a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. I would say one important thing we need to remember in this section, as we look at who the bridegroom is, as we get ready to see some of the harsher statements of judgment, Beloved, we need to remember this description. This is the word of God. These are the true words of God. Christ is faithful and he's true. He doesn't just judge and make war willy-nilly. He judges and makes war in righteousness. Oh, how difficult this is for us to remember. Just think about John's readers and hearers. They're sitting in the midst of a land of persecution. They're being killed. They're being put to death by Romans. How easily it would be for them to cry out, How is this fair? This life is unjust. These were the ones who were shunned from every part of society. They weren't allowed to buy in the market. They weren't allowed to sell. They weren't allowed to hold jobs because they would not bow down to the emperor how easy it would be for them to say, this is unfair. God, this is not just. And so we need to be reminded carefully, God is faithful and true. God is just. No matter what we're going through, no matter what trial, tribulation, and circumstance we bear up under, God is faithful and true. And He judges and makes war in righteousness. And namely, as we see going on through the passage, he's the bridegroom that fights for his people. He's fighting for you and for me, for those whom he loves dearly. So we see the description mirrored from chapter 1, 2, and 5. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He has many crowns on his head, the name written that no one knows. He has a robe clothed clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We should know that's the blood of his enemies, not the blood of of the cross. The armies of heaven follow him on white horses. He has that sharp sword coming from his mouth. The picture here is of a king riding in glory, riding in victory on a white horse. It's meant to encourage us. No matter how evil the world seems, 
no matter how unjust it may get, no matter how much oppression may come upon the church and God's people, Christ is victorious. He is the King. He has all the power, all the authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who pays the price, you see. In our culture, often it's the bride's family or the father of the bride. We go to great and lavish expense. But you see, in Jewish culture, in Christ's world, He is the one who pays the price. He is the one that must go through the waiting period. Yes, we have persecutions in this age. We have hardships and trials of many kinds. But He is the one who is earning God's favor, who is fighting for His bride, who is seeking to make all things right. Let's look briefly at the last few verses. John, in verse 17, then sees an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice He calls to the birds overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Very macabre, harrowing picture here. Birds gathering to feast on the flesh of men of this age. Free and slave, small and great. I don't want to presume here that this is a literal picture. I don't know that when Christ returns at the end of the age, there's going to be a great multitude of birds hovering overhead. But it is symbolic of God's judgment. At that time when Christ comes, there will be a gathering. Why do we see this? Look at verse 19. It's not unjust. Because he sees the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured with its false prophet in his presence. The two are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. We see this great surge at the end of time coming together for the last battle. Armageddon, as some people call it. All of the earth gathered together to make war against Christ and His church. We see this horrible picture of a great time of division. But we need to keep in mind as our passage holds the two together, there are two images here. The picture of the feast of the Lamb, and the great supper of God. And we think how unjust that may be, but I would submit to us all, what's what's the greater injustice here? Is it God's judgment at the end of the age when He in His infinite wisdom has determined that this is the fullness of time when Christ should return and He comes to judge the earth, to cleanse it, to purify it, to make everything right and new and glorious? Is that the injustice? Or is the injustice everyone in this age constantly shirking God in His glory, in His kingship, God in His patience, waiting, inviting, providing for people to come back to Him and them saying, no, no, I don't care about that. This is my life. This is my time. This is my age. I'm going to live and do as I please. What an awful injustice in the face of God Almighty who is gracious, who is preparing a place before us, who is waiting, wishing that none would perish, constantly extending the gospel out of love and grace. 
and providing, inviting people by name, calling us out. Won't you come and feast and dine with me? Come without money and buy. Come and get the water of life. Get the bread of heaven for free. I think God is just in his judgment. And that's the picture that we see at our table. We'll pause that account. We'll look again next week at the defeat of that last part of the the counterfeit trinity of Satan himself. But I want us to consider that as we come to the table this morning. This is our application. These elements are meager. They're scarce. It's just little pieces of bread, little crumbs at a feast table. Just tiny little cups of juice or wine. And I would submit to you it represents that in this age, our earthly delights, our pleasures may be small. We may be persecuted. We may experience even physical torment like Christ himself. But this table is not a table of sorrow. This table is not a table of mourning. Yes, it points to the cross. It points to the great cost of our salvation. But this is a feast table. This small provision is intended to point us heavenward. That we would see the great feast that is coming. When we will again in the flesh enjoy all of the delights and the spoils of war from Christ himself. And one day, he will call you by name to come and take your seat. If you are trusting in him, if he indeed is your king and your Lord, he will call you by name. And he will pull the chair out for his bride. And she will take her seat in all splendor, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. 